Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 39 for April MMXII. Episode 39 is brought to you by this public service announcement. Hey, watch this. You're going to pull that alarm? Why not? It'll be fun. That kind of fun can cost a life. Barbecue! False alarms are no joke. They keep firefighters away from the real action. And in this business, a few seconds can mean the difference between life and death. Remember, a firefighter's job is to fight fires. Not answer false alarms. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Backroll to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are June's Backroll number 11 and Birds of Prey number 11, both for $2.69. and so if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Well, let's turn it over now to Kimberly Rockmore at the Watchtower News Desk. Kimberly, what do you have for us? Well, Stella, in Burbank, California on March 19th, Warner Brothers, Consumer Products, DC Entertainment, and Nick Grace of Walter Lane Productions Limited announced that Batman Live, a unique action-packed live arena show, will debut in North America on September 5th at Honda Center in Anaheim, California, following a popular and acclaimed arena tour throughout the United Kingdom, Europe, and Latin America. Two and a half years in the making, Batman Live is a visually 
stunning state-of-the-art production that brings Batman a host of iconic characters and the settings from the famed world of DC Comics live and on stage for the first time in North America. Batman is more than a comic book character, he is a cultural phenomenon. We are excited to bring him and his world to the stage live for the first time with this incredible arena show, said Brad Glow, president Warner Brothers Consumer Products. In fewer than four years, the show has gone from concept on paper to successfully touring through Europe and Latin America. It is now our very special privilege to bring this show to the United States and North America, home to Batman and Robin. Batman Live, produced by Nick Grace of Walter Lane Productions, features impressive stunts, pyrotechnics, illusions, and video screen sequences. Batman Live is a totally unique experience, a completely new way to experience the world of Batman, and has become a must-see for fans everywhere, said Grace. This is not a musical, but a live show with a thrilling Batman story, filled with action that appeals to adults, teenagers, kids, and families. We are proud to have this opportunity to bring to life the story of one of the most popular DC superheroes in the world today. With the 42-member cast, Batman Live has a new, original story that features Batman, his trusty counterpart Robin, tireless butler Alfred, and a host of other favorite Batman characters. Additional favorites include villains such as the Joker, Catwoman, the Riddler, Harley Quinn, Poison Ivy, and the Penguin. The action takes place in several settings from the famed stories, including Gotham City, Wayne Manor, the Batcave, and Arkham Asylum. What is compelling about Batman is that he's one of the rare superheroes who actually doesn't have superpowers. He's human, just like you or me, said Jim Lee, co-publisher of GC Entertainment. But through sheer determination, he has honed his body and mind to a level that makes him second to none, and that's an inspiration we can all relate to and be inspired by. To that end, this spectacular live show delivers an amazing authentic experience which actually underscores how real Batman could be while entertaining both parents and kids alike. There's no place on earth that doesn't know who Batman is. He's not just one of the most iconic superheroes ever created. He is one of the most iconic characters in history. And he has had more stories told about him than just any other character, period, said Jeff Johns, Chief Creative Officer, DC Entertainment. What's cool to me about Batman Live is that when you first come into the arena, you see the three-dimensional cityscape and you hear the sounds of the city. You're really entering Gotham in a way you can't experience anywhere else. You are an active participant in the story and a real part of Batman's world. As audiences enter the arena, they are greeted by a 3D Gotham City landscape complete with buildings, soundscape and video animation, setting the scene for the story to come. The magnitude of the production becomes apparent the first moment, a full symphonic score is heard, and a 105-foot bat-shaped LED video wall comes to life, enhancing the action on a custom-built stage. Another exciting element is the eye-catching all-new Batmobile, designed especially for the show by legendary racing car designer Professor Gordon Murray, who's known for designing racing cars for some of the most successful teams in the world for Formula One racing, as well as the famous McLaren F1 road car. Adapted from the DC Comics characters and stories, Batman Live focuses on Robin's quest for justice, which leads him to follow in the footsteps of his hero, the mysterious vigilante known as Batman. Much to the dismay of his protective guardian, billionaire Bruce Wayne, whom the audience knows is secretly Batman. Batman Live is, at its heart, a poignant coming-of-age story. Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson must learn to overcome their own fears and forge their own family, with the help of Police Commissioner James Gordon and Bruce's trusted butler, Alfred Pennyworth, if they're going to survive the combined forces of Batman's larger-than-life's rogues gallery, some of the most famous and beloved villains of the 20th century.
Alan Heimberg is the writer of Batman Live, who found the emotional heart of the show that tells the story and celebrates Batman and Robin, the dynamic duo. Heimberg said the creative team met every expectation of how to tell a story and surpassed it. We brought Gotham City to life in a way that I have never experienced before in any movie or any television show or any comic book. It is very faithful to the comic books and it is all heightened. You are there in person and you are sharing the experience with an enormous arena audience. It's live and it's happening all around you and it's something that people have never seen and will never forget. The action of the show becomes a non-stop thrill ride across Gotham City that transforms Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson into the legendary crime fighters Batman and Robin. The adventure transports the audience from the big top of Heli's Circus to the depths of Arkham Asylum and from the glittering peaks of the Penguin's Iceberg Lounge to the subterranean wonders that await inside the Batcave. Acrobats suspended in the air, the Joker's henchmen, in choreographed fight sequences, and stunning scenic elements are all parts of the Batman Live experience. Batman Live creative director Anthony Van La said, It has been a thrilling journey for myself, the creative team, and that company to develop the production from the early creative seeds to the first day of rehearsals and now to a fully touring production. It is everything I hoped the show would be exhilarating, impressive, exciting, dynamic, and yet accessible. And I truly hope that the arena going public have as much fun watching it as we have had making it. The acclaimed arena tour began on July 19, 2011, in Manchester, England, and toured throughout the United Kingdom. Europe and Latin America and the critics have been ecstatic. The Times of UK said it's a wildly ambitious show that more than fills an arena space. The Guardian said Batman Live has plenty to thrill and chill the audience. A two-hour extravaganza carefully crafted to delight small boys and raise frequent smiles and cheers from the grown-ups. The Bat fans roll their approval. The Daily Telegraph said Kapow, Batman's a high-tech hit. A live-action drama stuffed with dazzling special effects, retina-popping visuals, and improbable feats of high-wire daring-do, all choreographed within a Catwoman's whisper of perfection. And my two boys, aged 8 and 10, adored this show as much as I did. And the Manchester Evening News said, This show is mesmerizing. Entertainment doesn't come any better than this. So there you have it, folks. Boy, does it sound a lot like Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, but... Scan lots of rave reviews, and they've already had an extensive tour already, so it seems like they've worked out the kinks. And if you're lucky, perhaps you will indeed be able to snag a ticket and go see it. Uh, Stella, do you think that you are going to be able to get a ticket to go see it? You know, I've been considering this. Obviously, Anaheim is probably um, an issue, but if it does tour around us and there's you know a tour schedule up on Ticketmaster, then perhaps if... if it comes at a good time, then maybe I will will chance it and check it out and then report back to BTO fans. Kimberly, what other news do you have for us? Well, I did want to let fans of Batgirl know that Batgirl actually was revealed as a character in the Young Justice Invasion preview. And it has been revealed that she's going to be a full-fledged member for this season, along with Cassie Sands, Mark, and Beast Boy, and Lagoon Boy, and Bumblebee, and there are certainly more plenty. And this episode actually aired yesterday uh, on the DC Nation Action Block, 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and... Oh my word, when I watched this, it was astounding. I could not get over this. It was so amazing. And to see Batgirl in action and she was uh, teaming up with Cassie Sandsmark, it was just, it was wonderful. I totally agree with you. I mean, I was on this complete high all day just from this episode and 
you know, there's spoiler for anyone, you know, if if you guys have not seen it, this spoiler time, there's a five-year time shift, I guess you could say, from, or leap, not time shift, that makes it sound like there was some sort of machine, a leap from the season finale that we just had last week to this, so there's five years in the future where Dick is now Nightwing, Zatanna, and uh, Rocket are both on the Justice League now, Tim is Robin, obviously Batgirl, and you've got all these people. McGann and Connor are no longer seeing each other. McGann is with Lagoon Boy, which, whoa boy. And one of the things I wonder is like, well, if Wonder Girl Cassie's going to be on the team, how's that shipping going to work out? And, well, I guess he's open now, but it was just amazing. Amazing storytelling. It was great to see all these characters together. I love this show. Love, love, love it. I mean, that just cemented it for me. That's my favorite thing on right now. I love the comic. I don't know if I've ever recommended it, but the Young Justice comic is amazing. I don't know how much more I can say about it. I, I just want to, like, I, I think I'm going to have to start incorporating that somehow into Batgirl to Oracle because there's Batgirl right now live. And I've danced around the, the idea of potentially doing just uh, a commentary of it each week. So each week I would just go through like oh this is what's going on if she's in it i guess i would do that but i don't know if people would you'll you'll have to write in yeah please write in and let me know would you be interested in in an audio commentary of each of the young justice episodes when you when you know Batgirl is in and then of course i could always add super best friends forever because that also aired again uh i'm going to do the first two at the end of this episode but a third one came out again. It was just amazing. So really looking forward for this season to continue. And it, it almost it gives you faith in the world, that the world could be a good place. And, you know, with all the things that we're upset about at DC, you know, a Batgirl book that I'm not really enjoying, to have this and have something wonderful like this gives you hope that it could happen. So... Uh, and you know, it, it, that's certainly true, I certainly agree with you, but there's also another amazing thing coming out from DC right now, and that's Smallville Season 11. Oh, right, yeah, right. So, Smallville Season 11 number one came out digitally, written by our good BTO friend, Brian Q. Miller, and it was it was wonderful, I really enjoyed it, and I certainly hope that you... If you are a Smallville fan or just a Brian Q. Miller friend fan, that you go out and pick that up as well. Well, that's all that the Watchtower News Desk has for you. Back to you, Stella. Thanks so much, Kimberly. Yeah, I also read Smallville Season 11, and that was just fun. It was fun to see the different characters again and, and to have the journey continue after Season 10. And, of course, yeah, it's written by Brian Q. Miller, so you can't go wrong there. Okay, now on to the review. So my my vintage review here. Remember now that Barbara Zaka said that he's going to jump into this 80-page book, basically, for Batman Family. And, oh man, they are really long. So, it happened just the way that the issues are falling that when Babs appears, that I'm just going to do one Batman Family in this issue. And I think I may continue with that just for the next four, because Batman Family will end rather soon. And... In that way, you know, I can focus on one particular story rather than having two. I mean, that was really long. The the last episode, I remember just having long 
uh, recaps and then going through everything. So I think in this way it will be less, less time-consuming for you to listen to, and then we can just focus on one story. Okay, well, right now we have Batman Family number 17, Horoscopes of Crime. It was an April and May 1978 cover date. Writer Bob Rosakis, Don Heck, and Wiesik, and Vince Coletta as artists, Jerry Serpe as a colorist, and Clem Robbins' letterer. Also included in this issue are Scars, featuring Batman and Robin. There's a demon born every minute, featuring Man-Bat and the demon Etrigan, and the birth of Rebecca Elizabeth Langstrom, daughter of Man-Bat. I feel like no good can come about that. So this is the new 80-page style that Rosakis had been teasing about. So let's see if it works out. So in the Scars story, Huntress comes to Earth-1, Huntress of Earth-2 comes to Earth-1, to visit Batman, the counterpart of her father on Earth-2. She explains that she came using the transmitter cube in the JLA satellite, which connects with an identical device in the JSA headquarters on Earth-2. Batman, in turn, tells her to seek the advice of an older, experienced superheroine, Kathy Kane, a.k.a. Batwoman. So there's Huntress. She connects throughout, so I just want to start there. Prologue. Madam Zodiac, astrologer fortune teller, palm reader, now turning her prophetic powers to what she hopes will be a more lucrative endeavor, providing the horoscopes of crime. Zodiac explains that she sees Batgirl intervening between Poison Ivy and her goals, while Catwoman will find herself in a more bizarre struggle with the one known as the Huntress. Both Ivy and Catwoman are skeptical. Skeptical. And Zodiac, to prove that she is never wrong, makes a proposition, a double-or-nothing wager. If the proposed crimes of Catwoman and Ivy are carried out without telling her any of the details and are completed, then they will owe her nothing. If they fail, proving her correct, they must pay her twice her original fee. Ivy and Catwoman agree, since the former will be miles away from Batgirl's home turf, and the latter has never heard of Huntress. Chapter 1, Featuring Batgirl Barbara, along with a group of United Nations representatives from the Middle and Far East, Senator Thomas Cleary, I wonder if this is a mistake and it actually should be Robert Cleary, and Forest Ranger Todd Carmel, gather in a Forest Ranger's Tower high above a national forest in New York. Babs is meeting with high school friend Todd, deciding what to do after when one of the visitors asks how the, the trees in the reserve are growing so quickly. Todd is just as confused when a vine comes through the tower and wraps itself around Babs and some of the UN reps. Todd, making reference to Day of the Triffies, comes to the rescue, but he gets caught up, and Babs comes to the rescue as Batgirl, using an acid that she has found in her utility belt. Now, I actually had to look up this Day of the Triffies, and it's a like kind of a... a um, Oh, was that an apocalyptic novel where plants take over? I almost—it's like from the fifties too, so it's very sci-fi. I kind of want to read that next now. Babs drops down to the forest floor and finds Ivy, who is just as surprised to see Batgirl. It looks like Ivy is trying to shoot right to the top as the first multinational assassin by murdering those UN raps. Just as Batgirl gets the upper hand, someone knocks her out from behind, and Ivy leaves with the mysterious perp. Chapter 2, featuring the Huntress. At Gotham International Airport, adoring fans crowd around baseball superstar Catfish Turner of the Gotham Giants. Nearby is Helena on her way to see Kathy, reflecting that on Earth, Catfish is a fourth-rate pitcher who got booed in every game. Out of nowhere comes Catwoman with four henchmen, with the plan to snatch Catfish and demand a ransom. Helena changes into her outfit and equips her crossbow, disabling, not killing not killing, the four henchmen. Huntress is able to free Catfish, but she has a block when fighting Catwoman because she is too much like her own mother. She forces herself to think past it and overcomes Catwoman, but she too is knocked out from behind by another party. 
Interlude. Zodiac, Catwoman, and Ivy are all chatting about the heists, and Zodiac is thanked for aiding them and keeping them out of prison. Zodiac explains that the three of them share the same March 14th birth date, and that they should plan something big. Chapter 3, featuring Batgirl, The Huntress, and Batwoman. Helena and Babs finally meet, with Kathy introducing them right in front of Zodiac's tent, in fact. Nice little Easter egg. Babs doesn't know how to help Helena, and Helena just wants to know that she's not crazy for becoming the Huntress. Before the therapy begins, Kathy suggests lunch near the Provincetown Museum, where the three villainesses are, in fact, going to be. Speaking of the villainesses, Ivy and Catwoman are not convinced when Zodiac says that the target is an Indian ceremonial pipe made of pipestone, a dull red clay which is found only in Minnesota, the Dakotas, and Midwestern Canada, an artifact with great historical implications and also called Catlinite. And what's in it for Zodiac? Merely the satisfaction of seeing Ivy and Catwoman succeed. Our three heroines hear the hubbub in the museum and get in a tussle with Ivy and Catwoman. Huntress and Batgirl switch dancing partners and take them both out. Batwoman then leaps out of a window into an alley, catching Zodiac before she makes an escape. Ivy and Catwoman wonder how she could have been wrong about the cards, but apparently it went all as planned, with Zodiac snatching the pipe and vanishing. Who is the mysterious Zodiac and what do the cards say about her future meetings with Batgirl? The answers are in upcoming issues of Batman Family. Huntress then leaves in the beginning of There's a Demon Born every minute, going through the same transporter that she came through in the beginning. Okay, Um, a a small but important detail just to start this all off. Now we have, I guess with this 80-page, we have a change from the gray and blue uniform that Batgirl normally uses to the black and yellow, uh, but of course still with the professional collar. But on to the real comments. I actually really enjoy this story. First, it was just great to have a common thread go throughout the issue, that being Huntress. She appears in the Batman story, has a big focus in this particular story, and then she leaves in the Man-Bat story. We saw recently that sometimes multiple, multiple villains makes it complicated, and it's difficult to make them written well. But I think here, Ivy and Catwoman in this issue work well. These two villainesses have such strong ties to the heroes that they are are involved with, and that makes it even more dramatic. At first, I thought it was a little unbelievable that Catwoman seemed to have such a hold over Huntress. But since we find out that Huntress's mother in in her world, Earth 2, is actually dead, and she was Earth 2 Catwoman, I think that it does make sense since it would be tough to fight the visage of your your, um, dearly departed mother. And then, of course, acting as an umbrella over it all, you have Zodiac. Dubious, to be sure, but the end makes it all great. She was using the villainesses from the beginning for her own gain, constantly intervening, pulling strings, and guiding the plots. I'm interested to see how this will continue. It's actually been a while since I've seen Catwoman, you know, way back when she was jealous over Batgirl and Batman's relationship. But I do remember all that, the cat-related vocabulary that pops in, uh, like catastrophe. She always kind of focuses on the cat. I noticed that this is also the same with Ivy, since she always emphasizes different words associated with nature. Example, you're barking up the wrong tree. She says that a couple times. It's interesting how Huntress comes to Earth-1 in order to receive advice from superheroes on whether this is what she should be doing. Where are the mentors from her own world? And Batwoman doesn't offer any advice? What happened to the Batwoman we saw in an earlier Batman family who bonded with Babs? But of course, she did say that she was done with the whole superhero gig. And Babs, you know, she's not too encouraging. And we completely miss any advice she may have given her. So we just see Huntress returning home 
potentially with no answers. Will this be resolved with this just a plot device to get Huntress over here? Why was Bab so unhelpful? I mean, this is kind of something that I would like to see continued. Maybe if in Earth 2 Huntress has some sort of difficulty and, and, and hails Batgirl and Batwoman and they come out and have a good heart to heart, I feel like that would be a good story. So I guess we'll see. We'll see what happens. And I don't think it's too far away because Zodiac has something up her sleeve. But back to the villainesses, how interesting to see Ivy as a real eco-terrorist slash straight-up murderer. And this is something that, I, you know, her eco-terrorism, that's first and foremost, certainly. But people always die because of that. She doesn't go right for them. Like, she doesn't plan to, you know, I'm going to kill such and such. So it's very different characterization really made her out to be evil rather than what we've recently been seeing. And then Catwoman kidnapping a baseball player. I mean, if that's really what you want to <laughs> kidnap, I guess. I don't know, just because his name is Catfish doesn't really seem like the most lucrative thing in the world. But again, an enjoyable read, and I am looking forward to the continuation of the Zodiac story. But it'll be in two months, because next month Batgirl is actually found. And I think Batwoman as well are both in Freedom Fighters number 14 and 15. But I give this story 8 out of 10 bats. Oh, it's that time. Letters page and special special delivery page because we actually have double like we had in, in, I believe, the last episode as well. Dear Editor, Batman Family constantly surprises me. What the heck is there that you can do with Batgirl, Robin, and Man Bat issue after issue? For quite a while, I was expecting you to run out of good ideas and fall back on hackneyed plots. It didn't seem possible that you could keep up the quality. Both stories like old superheroines never die, they just fade away, and BF number 14, you do. The story itself was a delight. I was really afraid that another appearance by Batwoman would be too much, that she would weigh down the story. I wanted to see the dynamite duo in action, not that nostalgia-prone Batlady. I got what I wanted. Batgirl and Robin were both at the height of their abilities, fighting and detecting. Robin showed what he is capable of, and that his training by Batman has been a tremendous help in the development of his skills. To those readers who say he is not viable as an adult character, I say look at this story. It's almost as if Robin is a teacher and Batgirl is a student. Um, really? Even if they are considered equal partners in crime fighting. Robin took charge and had the reasons for doing so. His tracking of Mr. Brain and Dr. Braun w was worthy of his mentor. On the personal side of Robin's actions, there's his growing relationship with Lori Elton. The way Don Heck and Bob Wiesick, ah, it's Bob Wiesick, drew her, it's no wonder Dixon loved with her, and somehow it doesn't surprise me to learn that she might know Dick's dual identity. As close as she is to him, it wouldn't take too much to figure out what's going on when Dick departs the scene. My statements about Batgirl being a sort of spectator slash learner deserve clarification. BG had to stand aside and let Robin call the shots because she might have torn her protective suit. What she was, oh man, I remember that, ugh. What she was able to do, however, was quite good. I like the idea of recalling her photographic memory, something which should be used again in the near future. But why was it ignored so long? And as long as I'm asking questions, why don't we ever see anything about Bad's private life, her job, her friends, etc.? Somebody as beautiful as Barbara Gordon must have at least one or two boyfriends around. I do definitely the, the question about photographic memory and the private life, I think I would... Uh, concur with for sure. Mike White, Makana, Illinois. You'll be seeing some more of Barbara's private life in upcoming issues, Mike. As this issue's tale reintroduces her sometimes boyfriend, Senator Thomas. I didn't think it was, it was Robert. I'm so confused right now. Senator Thomas Cleary? That's not what it is. As 
for her photographic memory not being utilized, it's because everybody forgot she had one. Well, at least he's honest. Guess everyone forgot her law degree and everything else, too. Okay, so I just looked up about the senator, and apparently his name is Senator Robert Thomas Cleary. Why all of a sudden they have gone from calling him just Robert Cleary to now Thomas is beyond me. But there you go. So I was not wrong, but I was not 100% right. Dear Editor, the heck slash Weasic art team left a lot to be desired in the job they did on Old Superheroines Never Die. Dick Grayson, Barbara Gordon, Laurie Elton, and the other regulars look nothing like the characters I've grown to know and love. Don Hex penciling has always been on the sketchy side. Wow. Evidently, Bob Weasic is not the answer for tightening it up. But the story itself was an absorbing race-against-time affair, even if it was a bit far-fetched. I like my Batgirl Robin stories more down-to-earth, but if we cast this minor complaint aside, we have another in a continuing series of Dynamite Duo classics. Mr. Brandon and Dr. Braun were a pair of cleverly designed paradoxical villains who, with some nice eye-catching costumes, could make a nice beginning to a rogues gallery for Batgirl and Robin. The cameos by Kid Flash and Batwoman were very nice, a sort of reaffirmation that they are all part of the same universe. And while we got a little more than a glimpse of Babs' private life, the expanded look at Dick and Lori more than made up for it. Their little tiff and the resultant making up gave us a bit of insight into their growing relationship. Scott Gibbs in Evergreen, Colorado. More of the relationship will be seen next issue as Dick and Lori find themselves enmeshed in the art of murder. Oh boy, could this be the reveal of Dick's identity? Who knows? On page three, dear editor, on page three of Cinema Attack, when Kirk Langstrom says, what is this tripe? He should have been referring to your preschool attempt at writing. Oh my word. A better title would have been Gastrointestine Attack. Not only have you wasted one of our greatest resources using trees to make the paper your scrap is printed on. Oh my word. You have also made a mockery of one of our modern miracles, the boob tube, and your so-called, oh my and your so-called art is no better. The penciling needed an eraser, and the inks look like they were done by a quadriplegic squid. Oh my, what? Bogadiddy, what? Bogadiddy, bogadiddy, bogadiddy. Whew, now that I've exercised the demon with Emmy that wrote all those untrue statements. What? What is this? I'm free to tell you what I really thought? Okay, so for an entire paragraph, they've just lied. I loved it. Oh, my gosh. I loved it. Cinematac is the funniest thing I've seen since some guy pulled across on Count Yorga and got knocked in a quicksand pit. The characterization of Ambrose Robertson, complete with the Frankenstein t-shirt, captures the true meaning of the word fanatic. My only regret is that Ambrose didn't throw hair remover in Mambat's face and say, that's how they got rid of the werewolf. You have truly given me a good laugh. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have to get back to my sarcophagus before some aspiring archaeologist digs me up and puts my Minnie Mouse watch in a museum. Beverly Thon, Saginaw, Michigan? Better your watch than your copy of Batman Family. Thanks for your amusing letter, Bev. We're glad to see most readers got as much fun out of reading Cinema Attack as we had writing it. Bob Rosakis. So those are the letters. And then after the Batgirl, Huntress, Batwoman story, we had a special delivery. 
This issue introduces the Huntress to Batman family readers, and next issue she'll begin her own regular series in those pages, but in the meantime, here are some comments on her recent debut. It may be ironic that with the strong reemergence of all-star comics and the Justice Society, some of the finest stories being told in today's comics are taking place on Earth 2 rather than Earth 1. I myself view this as quite a natural development. On Earth 2, changes in the lives of well-established characters like Superman and Batman can be made without detracting from their commercial appearance. Having applauded the basic concept of Paul's creation, I must now knuckle down to an objective analysis of the type of story he told and the manner in which he told it. Really? It was a damn good story that made me care about its participants and want to see more of them. The world in which this tale happened is a world that needs Batman, and now a huntress. It is a night-dark world where the nicest people have the most extraordinary things to hide, where criminals are going to commit the most daring robberies and get off scot-free if someone doesn't go out and stop them, and where a woman who only wanted to forget her past and start a new life may wind up dead because the past doesn't want to be forgotten. This, then, was the real strength of the first Huntress story, a character who leads the life of wealth and comfort to enter one of the lurking peril and moral bankruptcy. She did it in much the same manner as her father, but what happened next and what's going to happen in the future is something that belongs to her and her alone. Thus, what might have turned out to be a familiar tale of personal vengeance wound up as an aspiring story of one person who cared enough to go out and clean up one small portion of the city's dirt. Motivated by a desire for justice more than anything else, as evidenced by the fact that her mother's killer was very much alive when turned over to the police. Her story isn't over, of course. In fact, it's just the beginning. She's taken a step toward a new life, one that will plunge her into the seamy side of her world. But she took that step knowing full well what it meant. As Raymond Chandler once wrote, Down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. The Huntress is a woman who is neither tarnished by the stain of murder for revenge or afraid of those who have no such scruples. She is the first in a new generation of heroes, the offspring of one of the best from the one gone by. I look forward to her next appearance. Advia Roanoke, yeah, yeah, Virginia. From each ending, a beginning perpetuates many of DC's current problems in the creation of new characters and in the misuse of old ones. The largest problem is that the motive for becoming a costumed hero is always the same. Revenge, perpetually because of the death of a loved one. How many times in the past ten years haven't I read that series of events in which the person instantly becomes an avenger out of grief? Not many, and it's getting pretty boring. I'll admit that being the daughter of one of the first heroes to use... To use that since cliched origin, the Huntress has something of a prior claim excuse, but it still grates on my sensibilities, and I hope that future creations will steer clear of it. The other basic problem is that your story showed very little about Helena Wayne, her childhood, her intelligence, if it exists, and going out after a crook without any noticeable physical training seems to indicate a lack of same. Her relationship with anyone, her lifestyle, job, etc. In short, anything besides being the progeny of Batman and Catwoman that might make us care who the heck she is. I realize, and this seems a feeble excuse to me, that you only had 13 pages to work with, but Helena got four pages to herself and it was all action. Two major shortcomings. Why is she called the Huntress? She never takes a name in the story, and she should, as the daughter of a crime fighter, know of the original criminal Huntress. And be aware that taking the name might mean acquiring the former's reputation. Mike T.A. Finbawa, Menomoney Falls, Wisconsin.
Some of your questions will be answered in her own series. Others we felt were apparent in context, such as the obvious fact that she had some training both athletically and criminal criminologically, as was demonstrated in those four pages of action. And we'll stand by the validity of Huntress's motivation. Complaints, when we use it in a less appropriate case, would be taken more to heart PL. The Huntress is a fascinating blend of old and new, the past and the present, the established facts and the daring leap of the imagination. Helena Wayne is a worthy and fitting successor to her father. Paul Levitz has created an excellent new character and has introduced her in a dramatic, gripping story evocative of the Batman's own origin. Indeed, how else could the daughter of the caped Avenger of the night begin her career than in a tearful vow over the grave of a parent? Earth, too, it seems, has turned out to be a very convenient development, both for explaining away apparent inconsistencies in the Batman and Superman annals, and for populating with new offbeat characters. Just as the Superman of Earth 2 is married to that world's Lois Lane, Earth 2's Batman has had a career extending over some 30 years and is married to the former Catwoman, has retired from crime fighting, and is the father of a daring young woman. One can't get away with real developments with the standard Earth 1 heroes, but the alternate world of Earth 2 offers fertile ground for the clever mind, and Paul was clever. To so neatly combine the hints of a Batman Catwoman romance and the older, little used Earth 2 caped crusader, then fill in the gaps in a perfectly reasonable manner. The Staten Layton art cannot go unmentioned as it added to the dramatic effectiveness of the tale, all in all. A very nice job. From each ending, a beginning, one would hope so. This concept shows great promise. Beth Montalone, Rochester, New York. Well, that, you know, if we, we could read that right now after one of the modern huntress the limited series that we had, and it would certainly fit since Paul Levitz had had that writing as well. Well, that is it for the old issue, and see, it still took up a decent amount of time. But when I come back, I will review Batgirl number 7 and Birds of Prey number 7. But now, Zias's Radio Hour featuring The Scientist by Coldplay. See you soon.
take me back to the start into the modern books let's see if Batgirl has made any improvement from the last month's abysmal grading so first up we have Batgirl number seven a view from below writer Gail Simone pencil Ardian Siaf and Aletha Martinez inker Vicente Cifuentes and chorus Ulysses Areola the issue opens in the sewers of Gotham with Batgirl's head held underwater by a man wearing an exaggerated devil mask. She chides herself that she was so easily able to take down his flunkies, but not the main guy. He is too strong for her, but she is Barbara frickin' Gordon, and she uses her smarts to throw him off with a grappling hook. 
The guy loses his mask, saying he is exposed and disappears, basically the Cheshire cat, talking to her all the while and praising her, hoping that they will meet again. As Babs practices her upchuck reflexes, she thinks back to the beginning of the night. Two hours ago, Batgirl knocked on the window of Dinah's apartment. Once inside, Batgirl asks Dinah to spar with her because she needs to hit something, a.k.a. air her frustrations. Dinah pushes Batgirl and calls her a cheerleader. Then Batgirl goes all out, but Dinah still gets the best of her. Lying on the ground, Batgirl thinks of Joker and believes that while her body is healing, her spirit is still wounded. Over tea, Babs talks about her mother's reappearance, and Dinah asks whether her father knows. Of course not! And yet... Over at GCPD, McKenna bursts in on Gordon to tell him that there is a visitor for him, none other than Barbara Sr. Jim tells her he had her traced and asks why she would leave or could leave like she did. Barbara tells him it was because of their son, James Jr. Back at Dinah's dojo, Babs also admits that something has been off lately and she started crying when she saw a girl in a wheelchair. Dinah slaps some sense into her and tells her to stop wallowing in her self-hatred. She tells her that there is a creeper called Grotesque that will be doing something downtown and the birds are busy. Babs asks for the address and goes on her way. At Cartier's One Club, the most expensive exclusive private club in town, second only to the Iceberg Casino, Grotesque with his groupies are holding up Theodore Eichen's birthday. All Grotesque wants is Latisse, the legendary wine from 1846, estimated value $0.5 million. Now Eichlin refuses, he loses his life, and Batgirl goes to work. Dear dirtbags, meet Batgirl. The thugs hear sirens and decide it is time to leave. Grotesque absorbs power from the building and breaks his way out of the building. Batgirl is confused for Batwoman, follows the trail of Grotesque, and leaps into the sewer. We flash forward to the present where Batgirl is still in the sewer and checking the different faces of those she took down. With shock and horror, she discovers that one of the men was with Joker on the night that she was shot. Next, Batgirl faces a nightmare from her past. It seems like nowadays every comic and its mother will begin with a certain scene, then flash back, and then end with that scene that it began with. And Batgirl is no exception here. And, you know, while it works fine, there is no added flair to this method in this particular example. The whole this bad guy is stronger than me line is getting a little tired. And this really gets me because while Batgirl is obviously not the strongest hero by far, she certainly does not complain about it this much. She's quicker to act in another fashion like she finally does with the grappling device. Again, we have another new villain with his own quirks, you know, not wanting to be seen without a mask, wanting to see Batgirl again, disappearing into the ether. No, he's not compelling, but I do have to say that his entrance is much better than Gretel's, which we saw in the previous issue. I go back and forth as to whether his introduction, you know, could have been better saved for the middle of the issue rather than starting out with it, then going back to where, to the point of the story where he didn't exist and then ending up with him again. I wonder about the scene with him disappearing from view. At first, the, the blurriness of him, um, it made me think of question because it looked like he didn't have a face for a moment. But, you know, probably not. He does have some tricks up his sleeves, but what is with the name Grotesque? Can't there be a normal name? Then we have Dinah and Batgirl. Oh boy, I don't understand this. You come to her apartment in the middle of the night and ask for a training session? Why is Dinah sleeping on the eve of a mission that she puts a lot of focus on later? 
Number one, how does this fit in with Birds of Prey? You know, she's off, she's on, she's off again, she's on again. Uh, talking about Batgirl, obviously. And here, they're, you know, BFF. And number two, uh, I must admit that I do like the dojo scene here because it, it, it at least feels normal. Yes, the dialogue is way off between the two of them, especially with Donna calling Babs a cheerleader and Babs going off on that illusion. But the two of them working out together really feels like the old 52 and the old Birds of Prey. And then, of course, we have to ruin it with the killing joke. Talking over tea again seems right, even though Babs is a little whiny for my taste. But as if Gail Simone is playing Babs and I am Dinah, Dinah smacks some sense into her, and things perhaps go back to normal or will go back to normal. One of the worst scenes, though, hands down, is with Jim and Babs Sr. Number one. It is wrong to marry your sibling. Do you notice how alike they look? Hello! And number two, the scene is just so poorly written. It, it doesn't follow any logical path. Jim blurts out, you know, out of nowhere that he had his wife traced, and then Babs blames it all on James Jr. We then have the true introduction of Grotesque. And, you know, I think it works just fine. We all know that many parties are held up, and it's a different change to see a bottle of wine being the main desired item. I mean, Batgirl got her start, really, at a held-up party, didn't she not? But I don't like how Batgirl waits until the host is killed before she decides it's right to go in and help. Uh, she says, I'm going to wait out here. I don't want to endanger anyone if this is just a stick-up. But wait... I mean, people are being held up, there's a crime in progress, and you're not doing anything, but then someone gets killed, and then you decide it's time to go in there. Oh my gosh, how many times has someone been killed or injured, and she's blamed herself for this, but she lets it happen, and she's not as guilt-ridden, that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's a little confusing what Grotesque is doing with the power, how he got the cables, what his powers are, even if he has powers, or, you know, is he just the Cavalier in disguise, which is a little uh, Easter egg for those of you that have been following along. And then we're back to the sewers. Batgirl is checking identities, and, oh yeah, guess what? We have another connection to the killing joke. This one guy of all the gangs in Gotham has to have a connection to Joker and Grotesque, what are the odds of that? I mean, I guess I should be happy that this is happening, that, you know, once and for all we can get on with it, but I just find this too ridiculous. She decides her body is healing, but her soul is not, and, oh, look, a way to get over it is by finding a man directly involved with that traumatic night oh so long ago. I don't know. I would, however, argue that this is probably a better issue than we've been seeing by far. But there are still miles to go, and I really need to be rid of the past for Batgirl to be a stronger and better character. And I think she needs to move on from it to become that stronger character as well. Uh, some small details that I found cute or humorous. Uh, Catwoman Loves Me was etched on the sewer walls in the beginning. And uh, it was just interesting having Batgirl being confused with Batwoman in the beginning. I give this, which it, you know, it has improved from the previous issue, 6 out of 10 bats. I'm hoping that the next issue will <laughs> be better as well, but there are just changes that certainly, uh, that really need to be made, I would say. Okay, moving on from that, next up we have Birds of Prey number 7, Brain Damage. Writer Dwayne Sprzynski, Art Jesus Saez, and Colors June Chung. 
Picking up right where the previous issue ended, Dinah, Katana, and Ivy are fighting a bunch of number crunchers armed with letter openers. So I don't know how one of them got a gun, but okay. Dinah tells Katana to hold back, aka not kill anyone, but Ivy doesn't listen and is a little too heavy with the force. Dinah then goes after Ivy to knock some sense into her. With two birds distracted, it is easy for Choke to equip another agent to attack Ivy. Meanwhile, Batgirl and Ev have discovered Choke in the basement of the building. It is none other than Trevor Cahill. Ev has her gun trained on him, but he says a rhyme, and it looks like Ev is under his suggestion as well, turning her gun towards Babs. Luckily, Ev can only get a shot off into Batgirl's arm. Back up top, Dinah decides that she has to incapacitate everyone, including her teammates, and unleashes her canary cry. Below, Batgirl takes out Starling and runs out of the building, telling Dinah over Comlink that Cahill is choked as she had suspected, but he's getting away. Dinah and Babs corner him in an alley, and Cahill tries to explain that he did all of it for Dinah before Babs throws a concussion battering. Dinah explains how she knew it was him. Batgirl tells her that Starwin is compromised. Dinah says that's ridiculous since Ev is the only one she trusts, and Batgirl exits, hurt in more ways than one. Two hours later, in an abandoned aqueduct, Trevor is tied to some rebar, and Dinah is questioning him. He lets slip that Dinah killed her husband, shocking the birds. Trevor dances around whether he actually had a plan or not. Ivy tries her toxic seduction, but Cahill says a rhyme, and Ivy suddenly loses much of her leafy self. It seems he planted a suggestion in her brain that the green and human sides of her should not be able to coexist. Ev demands he remove the suggestion, but he tells her to shoot Katana in the stomach. She turns, but Dinah takes her out right in the nick of time. Having had enough, Katana decapitates Choke, explaining that her husband will be able to find the reason behind the plan. Dinah yells at her, asking how she knows her husband is in her sword. Katana walks off. Ivy quits. Ev snaps back, but doesn't believe that she tried to kill anyone, and Dinah tries to argue to herself that the birds are a force for good, but cannot convince herself. Later, Dinah checks out Trevor's apartment, breaking things more than investigating. Batgirl arrives and the two have a moment before Katana tells Dinah over Comlink that the man in her sword is not Choke. Next up, the killer canary. I would say that the main problem I have with this issue is Dinah's sudden concern with killing bad guys. Now we saw many issues ago how Dinah was applauding Katana for her lethal skill as she was going about slicing and dicing. And those were cleaner agents. Now she's raising a fuss and not wanting the sleeper agents to be killed. She even has an intense reaction out of the death of Cahill. Now this would be believable if not for the earlier issue. I also don't like Dinah going for Ivy while everyone is being attacked. This seems like the wrong way to get Ivy to do something. Now you are attacking your teammate while you are outnumbered. Uh, kind of puts you at a severe disadvantage. And we saw that um, the bad guys took advantage of that. I was really shocked to learn that Cahill was choke. It was a plot twist that threw me for a loop because I have actually become invested in the story and the characters, um, so it was even more potent. It now makes sense why Dinah wanted to see him a few issues ago when she read about the agent's death in the paper. There's definitely some Silver Age moments going on with the explanation of how Dinah knew Cahill was choke. You know that they always use a page or perhaps the epilogue if you've been following along and they kind of explain how they knew everything. I also like the twist that Ivy and Ev have been compromised and I wonder how it 
you know, it's all going to turn out. This, along with the shocking info about Canary's husband, have really served to cause a rift in the team. I mean, just as they were getting along, uh, you know, Ev actually tries to help Ivy, which is a great deal of progress. They're breaking up. It was such a high in this issue, and then bam, everything is cut off. Now, the problem with the mind-messing villain is that when you read it, you also have trouble knowing what is up and down. Ev seems so convinced that nothing happened in the end that you almost believe her. I'm really surprised that Dinah said Ev was the only one she could trust, given the close relationship that we have seen between Dinah and Babs. You know, though in this book, this particular relationship is, is never certain. But I'm glad that they made up in the end and had a good moment in the conclusion. I wonder what Cahill meant uh, that he was doing it all for Dinah. And now, could it be that someone else was pulling the strings and either Cahill wasn't choke or if he was choke, then there was somebody above him? As a small detail, I really liked the designs on Starling's guns. I, I don't think we've really seen them up close before, but just when she's pointing them at Katana, you can see this ornate uh, flower design on the pistol. Great issue, as always. It was a shocker, and Swordsinski really built up this Cahill character, and I thought, wow, this is going to be a minor character. Perhaps he's going to be a handler for the, burbs, for the birds, and you get invested in them, and then kind of the rug is pulled out from under you, and it's even more powerful that, oh man, he was the bad guy behind it all. 9.5 out of 10 birds. Can't wait for this series to continue. And and as I record this, I had my interview with Dwayne Straczynski, so I hope that you enjoyed that. And, and I learned lots of things, and it was great to get his insight on the team and, and the story and where it's going to go from here. So I hope you enjoyed that. Okay, next up we have Babs in the Tube. Now, this is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. Since I started, I've been doing uh, the Batman Live Action 1966 television series, but I am going to take a break for this one. Now, in DC Nation, which airs on Cartoon Network Saturday mornings from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, there are many different shorts like Plastic Man, Baby Superman, Teen Titans, and Super Best Friends Forever. And that's what I'm going to talk about. They've had two of these shorts, and I just thought I would take take a break and talk about these, and then I'll go back to the 1966 series in the next episode. So here's the clip from the first short, and then I'll talk about it. Mother, O oh great and wise Hippolyta, hear my plea that I may not disappoint you as I join my sister's quest to help ease suffering in the world of man. <laughs> no. See? Your sister Wonder Woman left behind the keys to her invisible jet? And it's ours for the taking. No. Come on, I've never been invisible before. I want to show Lex Luthor just how secret his secret lair is. With about 50 rolls of TP! No. Oh, come on! You're the only one who can fly this time, and I'm just dying for a burrito! From Mexico! No. Please? No. Please? No. Please? No! Oh, why not? Because such dishonesty is not befitting an Amazon princess. I promised my mother that I would serve as a symbol of integrity and strength so that the world of man would know what it means to be an Amazon. Plus, my sister would kill me! Oh, come on! We could stop off in some more tornation to help starving orphans. With a jetload of burritos! Let's go! 
Okay, so a uh, cute quip. You definitely, I mean, the audio doesn't do it justice. You have to watch it. But basically, Super Best Friends Forever, SBFF. Uh, it's complete with Donna Troy, Wonder Girl, Supergirl, and Barbara Gordon, Batgirl. So definitely you have Donna Troy, complete with exotic accent, acting the part of the responsible hero, very intent on keeping her sister's respect. Supergirl seems certainly like the most dramatic, uh, and the one whom you would least like on your bad side. And then Babs, she's definitely playing the part of the youngest of the three, bubbly, full of life, ever positive, and with the powerful ability to put a smile on your face. She definitely reminds me of Steph, and I know many would have liked to have seen Steph play this part. But, you know, I think it works well with Babs. We always have seen the, the smart, serious, sometimes playful, and sarcastic Babs in comics because she was older and had a lot of responsibilities. But I think these shorts beg the question, what was Babs like when she was younger? And this is a stronger characterization, I think, than the younger Babs seen on the Batman, but she captures the life and, and fun of the character. I really like this short. Uh, perhaps one of my favorite moments was having Babs do cartwheels on top of the invisible jet and wanting real burritos from Mexico. I love the art playing behind Donna as she says her pledge, and after all that, the real reason that she does not want to fly the invisible jets because Dinah would kill her. But Donna um, is resilient, and the only thing to convince her is helping orphans from a war-torn nation. Oh, yeah, and filling the jet with burritos. And uh, you definitely have to watch it for this detail, but if you notice right at the end, Supergirl is bringing an armful of toilet paper <laughs> onto the plane, which, oh, priceless, priceless. I guess all those burritos, you got to be careful, right? Uh, so that's the first one. Um, I don't know. I love it. And and I know there are people that, that don't really like this bubbly Babs, but I really think you you got to look at it from the same point of it's a younger Babs. Um, just, and it, it really captures, though, the positive and, and bright and happy moments that we've seen so far. And I hope that those of you out there that didn't like it aren't so bogged down with the, the back roll that we're currently reading that you've kind of lost um, oh, the childish wonder of, you know, what Babs was like. Well, here's the second clip, and this is Babs-centric. Uh, love this, especially with the moped. So take a listen, and we'll talk later. Please tell me something exciting is happening. Poison Ivy is causing mayhem downtown. Yes! Give me ten minutes. My dad doesn't know my secret identity, and I can't sneak out until he's asleep. Then Supergirl and I must proceed without you. No, 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 no! I'll be there. I'll figure something out. I'll... Babs thinks that her dad doesn't know her super ID, but of course, with all incarnations, um, 
he probably does. I like that Babs has this music box, and it's basically a, a dad detector. Uh, Gordon moves so slowly in this short, basically to make Babs sweat in over an exaggeration of the guy. Her leaping out of the window reminds me of Batgirl Year One. Love it. I loved the moped scene. Better to give the young girl a moped than a Harley, probably. And then every conceivable obstacle hops in her way. You've got a black cat. Could this be some block of Catwoman and those shorts that um, the Batman, the animated series of uh, producers did, maybe? I love the iconic Batgirl image in front of the moon. It's my current uh, Facebook picture right now. The spring, the, the springy feet, uh, kind of like Inspector Gadget, getting the springs caught on an antenna and then falling, throwing a gadget and landing on a mattress, running through the people's apartments, which kind of reminds me of the first Spider-Man game on uh, PlayStation. I think you and Carn uh, Venom run through people's apartments. And after all that, she gets there first, which is great. These shorts, oh man, first and foremost, they're supposed to be fun. Uh, you know, it's like 60 seconds... Um, maybe like 80, closer to 80, 90. Yeah, this is not a characterization of Babs that we're used to, but I think that younger Babs probably was just as bubbly as Steph. I mean, it's not like she was always super serious, and she always had uh, a fun side that, that Robin certainly brings out, and I don't think that has, that developed all of a sudden, and I think that she's had that all along. It's just great to see the shenanigans and what these girls get themselves into. I'd say the only one that has yet to sell me is Supergirl. So I'm hoping for an improvement in her character because it just seems eh, you know? It just seems like she's there. Yeah, she has some cute lines, but um, I don't know. I'm not as enthralled with her as I am with Babs or Donna Troy. So yeah, give these a shot if, if you have already seen them and didn't really like them. Maybe give them another go and see if um, your perspective can change if you look at it in a different light and hopefully hopefully I helped you there but of course I mean you're gonna like what you're gonna like and and people don't like things that I mean that's just how the heart works the heart and the mind so I like them uh, that's what my mom says well I liked it so yeah I liked it but anyways, let's uh, let's move on from that. I'll try not to ship myself. Uh, but speaking of shipping, next up we have Shipper Spotlight. I love shippers. Let me tell you about shippers. Get over your own shipping bullshit. Let, let, let me tell you about shippers. <laughs> get over get get over your own shipping bullshit. Shipper. I love shippers. 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 Let me tell you about shippers. Stop talking about that. Ship shippers. I love shippers. Dick and Babs. Dick 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 and Babs. Batman and Cat Catwoman. There we go. For the shippers, Batman's married to the Joker. To the Joker. There better not be Damien Seth 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 any shippers. I'll kill them. Dick and Babs. Remember, Shipper Spotlight is that beloved segment where in 120 seconds or less, I pick a couple, I talk about its history, its first hidden romance, and then the end, I tell you if the couple is hot or not. And these couples can be from comics, from movies, from oh, video games. I didn't think of that. But yeah, video games or cartoons. This Shipper Spotlight, I am going to go with Agent Brand, Agent Abigail Brand of Sword, and... Hank, Dr. Hank McCoy, Beast. 
first hint of romance. In Astonishing X-Men, it is clear how much at least Beast dislikes Brand, if not both of them disliking each other. In issue 21, Agent Brand says, I think we ought to split up. Beast, at least we agree on something. Agent Brand, you're coming with me beast and so ends that era they both they both make antagonistic remarks towards one another until we get to the giant sized astonishing x-men issue beast accuses her of still keeping things from him after all that has happened and really gets in her face about it when she tells him uh, that it isn't relevant she admits that she really is attracted to him she also reveals that she has an alien heritage her green hair is natural and that her father was a furry green alien leaving henry speechless Beast, my friends, my world at stake, and you're still hiding something important? Brand, it ain't relevant. Beast, I'll decide that. Brand, it's personal. Beast, and here I am in your personal space, so go ahead and open up. Brand, I am so hot for you right now, I could frickin' pass out. Told you it was personal. Oh my gosh! I oh. Anyways, I'll I'll hold the shutters for later. Later though, Brand offers a job to Beast. Beast, I guess I'll start. I'm fairly certain I hate you. Brand, well, that's kind of the point. I need someone to hate me professionally. I'm good at it. Well, I'm uniquely qualified for my job. But I made some crap calls this time around and we both lost men we shouldn't have. You're smarter than any dozen guys and you'll question my every waking gesture. On the job, there's nothing I could use more. Beast? And off the job? Brand, pretty much want to break you like a pony? It's a win-win. Oh, people, I did not make these things up. So, after all that, and they are dating, I guess I, I don't really need to go into that, but they're they're still dating people. Hot or not, Brand is a character that you quickly want to hate, but Beast is such a lovable teddy bear and his remarks towards her are so humorous, but unfortunately his cuteness does not trump the overwhelming awkwardness of this couple. And frankly, the sexed up comments that we are forced to endure from Abigail, oh, shudder. I know, hot or not, there's a reason why we do not allow interspecies relationships. Not. Oh boy, remember you can send me any couples that you would like me to highlight. I am always open for suggestions. Uh, literary recommendation, this would be the time for a literary recommendation, but to be honest, I don't I don't have one. I'm about to start uh, the book, The Freedom Writer's Diary, I guess. And, and this is the true story about Aaron Gruel, uh, the teacher... Um, who really makes an impact on young people's lives. And so I, I'm, I can't really recommend that yet since I haven't read it, so that would be false testimony. But looking forward to starting that. Uh, final comments. Yeah, send any questions or comments to backworldtooracle at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow uh, at batgirltooracle. Continue to sign the petition to get Batgirl Year One back into production. I just found out today that they're planning on making a direct-to-video movie about Flashpoint. Now, I know that there are probably people out there that enjoyed Flashpoint, but I thought that it was not a worthwhile story, and look what it turned the universe into, yes? So, potentially, they are... This is what someone... um, uh, told me his thoughts here potentially trying to make a crap story better by making you know a good movie and he cited Red Hood under the Red Hood as an example of that and I just have to say that if you're going to take a, a, a poorly written story and make it into a movie 
but you're not going to take a, a great story, back row year one, and put it into a movie, I'm a, I wonder about that. I do seriously wonder about the decision making. But anyways... Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks also to all of you out there. I know I get little notes on Facebook or Twitter or by email, and I just really appreciate the notes that you guys give me and, and the encouragement and the, the accolades and everything. I, I really do hear you out there, and uh, you're the reason why I keep doing this, to be honest. So... I guess 75% of the reason, you know, got the 25, or I guess it'd be 50-50, you know, 50-50 the listeners, and then you've got the other 50 being obviously my love for the character, but thank you to you. Well, I hope that your springs are starting off okay, I hope that you're safe, I know Texas was going through a lot, and there are a lot of other weird weather phenomenons going on, so please stay safe. And uh, you know what? Until next time, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. I love a happy ending, don't you?